Have you ever listened to a podcast and wished it was for your company? ClearBank.com provides capital for e-commerce companies looking to grow their business through marketing. These are flat rate return investments, not loans, that never take equity or ownership of your company or personal guarantees. If you'd like to see your company all over Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, go to clearbank.com slash podcast. That's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C, it ends in a C, dot com slash podcast to speak with their investment team. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. That's him. And uh, our guest this week is an author, musician, a recording artist, and one of the busiest, most respected and recognized actors of the past 50 years. He might also be our coolest and most debonair. <laughs> you take that one again. Debonair. Yeah, I'm getting he it right. He may also time. be our coolest <laughs> and most debonair guest to date. Debonair. Debonair. You've seen him in movies like A Night to Remember, Freud, Billy Budd, The Great Escape, Watcher in the Woods, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And hear my song, and in dozens of popular television shows, including The Outer Limits, Night Gallery, Heart to Heart, The A-Team, Murder, She Wrote, Babylon 5, Sex in the City, Jag, and as the medical examiner, Donald Ducky Mallard, in the long-running CBS hit, NCIS. But to Frank and me and a generation of kids who grew up in the 1960s, he'll forever be known as the sexy and mysterious Russian agent Ilya Kuryakin. And as in the iconic spy series, The Man from Uncle. In an acting career that began way back in the 1940s, he shared the big and small screen with Steve McQueen, Peter Ustinov, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Sidney Poitier, Claude Rains, George Burns, and James Mason, as well as podcast favorites John Carradine, Richard Liu, Cesar Romero and Vincent Price. He's even worked with former podcast guests Lee Merriweather, Barbara Felden, and Richard Donner. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show a performer who sang with Nancy Sinatra, lip-synced in the voice of Judy Garland, and danced with the late Carol Channing, and a man who was once rescued from a horde of screaming fans by the Central Park Mounted Police, the talented and elegant 
David McCallum. Good evening. Good evening. I have David. a dream. <laughs> I know that's a bad line for coming from a, a wee Maggie from Glasgow, Scotland, but I have a dream that when I die, I would like to begin with these occasions with death. Um, I, I, I have a dream that I go in this enormous ballroom and every single one of the characters that I have played over my life is there. Right now, the only one who isn't there is Ducky Mallard because he and I still have an ongoing relationship. Right. But I'm walking around this room in this dream, and these people come up to me and say, why the hell didn't you, you know, and criticize the, the performance of playing them, you know? Wow. And it's a recurring dream, which is so odd, but I sort of said also a divine idea. Is the, does it pertain to when you played real people like Harold Bride in The Night to Remember or also fictional characters? I, I, I have no idea where it comes from. I know that in the early days of my life I had a dream where I was um, on Shaftesbury Avenue in a theater and I came out and you walk and you're doing the, you go through all the stuff in the dressing room theater and finally come out walking down and I was hit by a cab and that's when I would wake up. Which is a typical, you know, you couldn't find the right makeup, the clothes. You're trying to find out if there's a name, at least. Is it a Shakespeare play? I mean, what am I doing? <laughs> you have and that. the lights, and the, it's already on. You're waiting to go on. All that, you have the all actor's right, nightmare. All right, you, you don't know your lines. And, and then I played Arthur in Camelot in the Lincolnshire Marriott Theatre. And every night I sang uh, the, uh, the music and, and, and played that part. And from then on in, I never had that dream again. Whenever I got out in Shaftesbury Avenue and I was walking down Shaftesbury Avenue, the overture to Camelot would wow. start. <laughs> and I'd go on sleeping quite happily. So you don't have the, the typical actor's nightmare uh, no. anymore. Uh, Camelot blew it away. Interesting. And can, can I say something? I first became familiar with you when I was a kid watching The Outer Limits. Yes. And from then on, no matter what I saw you in, I would always go, oh, it's the big head guy. Yes. The Sixth Finger. The Sixth Finger, written by Joe Stefano, yeah. as I remember. Psycho. Who wrote Man. Psycho, yes. Yeah. I mean, when you when you think of the list, and I look at my hand and think, well, the number of people it's shaken, with which he's shaken hands. Yeah keep my grammar proper but uh, you know you missed off Sean Connery and Mae Britt and uh, you know I mean there's I've I've worked with hundreds of people we could have kept going with those things and I've also been asked I was asked to do a play reading once I said oh and they sent me the script and I sat down we started to read the play up in the upper east side and I suddenly realized I'd done the play (laughs) and completely (laughs) forgotten that I'd done it wow so many things so Wow. And all of them wonderful. I, I had one great clunker directed by the Queen of Soap Opera. I, I can't remember her name. And it was at ABC Agnes uh, Live Studios up here on uh, 70, whatever it is. Okay. <clears throat> and it was called The Screaming Skull. The Screaming Skull. <laughs> and and it, it went out at, you know, whatever. And I thought, oh, thank God it's gone. It'll never come back again. But lo and behold, in this day and age, <laughs> the screaming skull <laughs> emerged. So only one clunker. Well, one that I, I really was embarrassed about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously there are one or two when, when you have children and 
and and you're growing up and you have a mortgage and things, there are times when people say, we're sending you a script, and you read the script and say, okay, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no way out. Right, I mean, of course. The bills are coming next month, and you've got to deal with it. How old are your grandchildren now, David? And do they do, do you show them any of the work? They uh, oh yeah, I, there are eight, um, and they go from fifteen to f- he was just five. Eight grandchildren. Eight to five, yes. And, and in New York, I have uh, six boys, all of them blonde, all of them looking exactly like me when I was that age. Wow. You know, that that uh, that they don't look like me, but I mean they have that same physiological appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, back when you were nicknamed the blonde beetle. No, my nickname when I was young, I worked at the Glyndebourne Opera Company as a stage manager because I was an, for as an actor, I was a stage manager. I was a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician. I did all of that. And um, Lister Welch, who was the stage, the real stage director of the entire Glyndebourne Opera, said you have to learn to handle the flats, and so which is what the scenery was called. And so we went out on stage, and he picked the biggest one he could find. It was completely empty. And he showed me how to pick it up and run with it and top it and then take two and tie them together and everything. And at the end of it, he said, all right, killer, that's enough for one afternoon. <laughs> and I said, killer? <laughs> I was a very emaciated, uh-huh. thin, <laughs> cave-chested. I was not in any way. And killer stuck for a while, but that's been my only nickname. That, and they call me the duck man. Of the course. duck man. And and Frank just mentioned you were called the blonde beetle. Did you and know? Did you know that? Were you aware of that? During yeah, the, I'm the, sure. The, the yes, I, I am. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, the, the nicest one they said that, um, and, and Catherine, who with whom I've been married for 52 years, um, or we've been together for 52. I, get, I always get that statistic slightly wrong. But it's all right. It's quite a long time. Yeah. Um, very early on in our association, there was a cartoon came out that said I was the greatest thing since peanut butter and jelly, <laughs> which I have always <laughs> felt. <laughs> if, if you're born in Glasgow, that's definitely a compliment. <laughs> yeah, because you were on, you know, the star of uh, Man from Uncle, uh, right around the, you know, the James Bond, Matt Helm, Flint. Period when being a secret agent was yeah. the coolest thing in the world. What was that in like Flint? In like Flint, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. with James Coburn, who you worked with in The Great oh, Escape. James, yes, sure, yes, yes, and, yes. And you um, became like this major sex symbol. Yes, well, well, when you're actually going about eating your toast in the morning, you don't feel like a sex symbol. <laughs> <laughs> We wouldn't know. The whole thing is entirely from the outside in, not from the inside out. I don't think I have ever in my life felt like a sex symbol. But I do remember when I came to Macy's doing um, The Man from Uncle and it was a public appearance because I had several records. with I had my own orchestra on on Capitol Records with H.B. Barnum doing the arrangements and um, Dave Axelrod, of course, the great Dave Axelrod. And... uh, we were going to do a public appearance, and so I arrived, and we went into Macy's. It was quite a large crowd, and the police came and said, "You're not, can't go near them. They'll tear you to pieces. It's it's a out of control mob of fourteen year old girls, <laughs> which is somewhat of an oxymoron, but evidently that's <laughs> what it was. Wow! And so they decided that they had to get me out of there. Well, we happened to be on the floor where executives are, and at one end was uh, an elevator. 
into which you could drive a car. And so they backed uh, one of New York's finest into the elevator backwards. They backed it in, yeah. Um, and I got in the car, and we went down in the <laughs> elevator. They'd cleared um, Herald Square down yeah. there. Yes. And so we were saying, and he started the car, we got the lights going and everything flashing, they opened the door and we flew out into the square and stalled right in the middle of the square. And I'm sitting back comfortably. <laughs> he is sweating, this poor man, and desperately trying to start the car. And I remember I turned to him, it was such a James Bond moment. I said, you know, if you turn off the lights and the siren, this baby might start. <laughs> Which he did, wow. and it did, and off we went. But the, 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 it was an insane time. You mentioned being rescued from Central yeah, Park. Yeah, what happened with Central Park? I just went for a walk and was recognized, and a lot of people came around. And, uh, and how were the, did the police come to be summoned? Um, well, they were there. Oh, they were already there. They probably saw that I was having a little trouble. I saw an interview with you, and you're talking about coming out of the house one day, and there was, there was someone going through your trash. Yeah, that was um, <laughs> in uh, in uh, in that place. Uh, What's it called? California. Yes. Um, there was a a lady going. Don't worry, don't worry. I'm just looking for souvenirs. <laughs> Gilbert, does that happen to you? <laughs> but the the stories about you having to be rescued by screaming girls sounds like every man's fantasy. No, it's it, it's 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 vicious. One of the worst, the one I was most frightened, and then I'll tell you one that's delightful, but the most frightening was in Louisiana, and I think at Louisiana State University. And the, there was a, I was finally rescued from a scene, and they said, they put me in the ladies' room, and two big cops stood outside and wouldn't let anybody into the ladies' room, and I'm in there safe. <laughs> but they forgot that there are windows at the back of the ladies' room, and these windows were pried open, and the girls started to climb in through the back oh. windows. And I was backed up against one side of the door, and the cops were against the other, and I was beating on the door, saying, screaming, open the door, open the door. And uh, I lost a few tufts of hair, which mercifully have still grown. <laughs> <laughs> They've grown back now, <laughs> but it, you know that kind of thing sure. is it, it, not. Uh, I believe the New York expression is not kosher. I, I read an interview with you. Correct me if I'm wrong. You said your aunt took delight in the idea of you being uh, a, a sex symbol. That they thought it was rather ridiculous. Your well, Scottish aunts. All those Scottish aunts have uh, handed in their portfolios. So uh-huh. you'd have to wait for a little while before checking if that. I see. <laughs> I see. <laughs> that, that 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 story, the 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 rescue story, and the uh, and and the the one from Macy's, frightening. Yeah, Macy's. It, was there a pleasant uh, one? Twenty five thousand dollars worth of damage. Twenty five thousand dollars worth of damage. So it was kind of scary, the sex symbol thing. Well, I was always protected, you know. And but the delightful one was in Tokyo, and Catherine and I were walking down the street in Tokyo. And it had got around that um, Ilya Koryakin was there, or whatever the Japanese is for Ilya Koryakin, <laughs> which I don't know. <laughs> and this sort of mob of young girls came charging down the street. And Catherine and I looked around. There was no time to do anything. It was, they were moving very fast. They got within 10 feet, 
stopped dead and all bowed. Wow. It was so gracious. (laughs) (laughs) That is a nice story. You knew David. I want to go back. You knew you knew from the age of eight. You were talking about before you were a stagehand before you were an actor. You knew very young that you well, wanted was, to do this with your life. It was a little church hall in a in an in- institute in a girls' school in Hampstead Garden suburb in mm-hmm. England, and I had been roped in by the. Uh, actually, I went to him, uh, the local electrician, and because I was so small, I would crawl through the attics of houses when he was rewiring them because he was too big to get through. And um, he taught me an awful lot about electrics. And he was the man who did the lighting in the local amateur dramatic society. And Mr. Dyson, bless his heart, um, said, you know, would you like to act? And introduced me to the people. And they did one of those evenings where there's a pianist, a a comedian, a, Mm -hmm. a woman singing, probably ghastly sound, but she sang. And one of the things was one scene from a Shakespeare play. And it happened to be the one, I think it's from King John, where the the uh, big burly jailer comes with a red-hot poker and he's going to put out the eyes of the prince who pleads for his life. And um, at the end of the scene, the entire audience leapt to its feet. I mean, how could I miss? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> What were you, eight? I must have been something around that. Eight or nine. I was was young. Yeah. This little blonde boy with this burly person saying he's going to put out my eyes. I mean, and I'm pleading. Anyway, uh, with all those people standing there, I thought, homework? No, not necessary. (laughs) Um, Practicing my oboe? No, I don't need to practice the oboe. Who wants to sit in an orchestra anyway? I'm home. That's great. And it was absolutely, in, I, in that moment, I was so relaxed and so happy. And it's one of the things about audiences that I've learned in my life is the warmth. It's, you know, they say, you, you know, you're obviously, every audience is different when you're doing anything, particularly doing Amadeus with uh, David Suchet, Suchet. You're so, Suchet, you're so aware of the, the audience each night. And in that moment, I realized that that contact, I'd made that contact. And I think it was more, not what I had done, but more that contact. Interesting. That gave me, a, 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 a young boy who was a, very much a loner, very much a reader of books, very much uh, in, in my own world of fantasy to a great extent, as far as academics were concerned, every report card I had does well but could do better. And I knew what was required of me, and that's what I did. And the, the subjects that I enjoyed, I did. And at the age of 15, uh, I left school with the stamp of approval from the government. I think it's matriculated, they called it, mm-hmm. and went to work. And uh, apart from a couple of years in the Army, uh, I'm still at it. You never looked back. I never looked back. Your parents were musicians. Your, your yeah. father was a violinist in the Philharmonic? My father, um, when I was born, toured all over Scotland, England with Chrysler and Danny Melba. And the, there was, you know, they, they went and played the halls, as mm-hmm. it was. And they were great and wonderful people that he worked with. 
And then um, he became the leader of the Scottish Orchestra in about 1934-5. And then in 1936, Henry Wood and Beecham, the two major conductors, one with the London Philharmonic, the other with the uh, London Symphony Orchestra, um, they both competed for father's talent. And he ended up with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, He was with that right up to the war. They... The, the the BBC did a lot of programs in all of the factories and places during the war, and father would go and do that. And then at the end of the war, uh, Jack Brimer, the clarinet player, um, decided to reform the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and asked father to lead it. And he did that right up until, what, 78, I think, somewhere around that, because he had a feeling Beecham was about to retire, and he wanted to leave before Beecham. Is it true your folks met in an orchestra pit? Playing? It's a wonderful story, and I ain't going to change it. Yes, they were. <laughs> it's, um, it's, a, it's a little, I think it's called Haddington in Scotland. And uh, what is interesting is I, I mentioned Haddington in NCIS. I uh-huh. mentioned something about... I can't remember exactly what it was. And I got this wonderful fan letter. And he said, um, I just have to write to you because you mentioned Haddington and the movie theater, with you, the cinema that your fa- father played in. And he said, I just want you to know that when I was very little, I would go to that theater and sit in the front row. And I used to reach through to the pit where your father was and talk to him. Wow. And he encouraged me to buy a violin. And I just want to thank you because I've enjoyed playing the violin all my life, having sat in that theater. That's great. You know, Your dad inspired of, him. Uh, yeah, six degrees of separation. Were they playing a silent film? That's that was the that story would all I read. Be silent, yes. Yeah. And my mother um, worked in the uh, the same venue. She also was in a ladies' orchestra, the photographer, which is phenomenal, <laughs> of that period with the clothes and everything, on a seaside town to boot. And uh, they met, they married. Uh, and then mother really didn't play that much after that. Father was a great friend of Mantovani, so he did oh. a lot of the Mantovani records. And shortly before he died, he recorded Softly As I Leave You, <laughs> which I thought was uh, well-placed. And you were in the movie Freud. Yes. With Montgomery Cliff. Because I, I remember that used to be on TV all the time. Yeah. And, John uh, Houston. And yeah. what, what was Montgomery Cliff like? He became a very good friend. I love Monty. Monty was a dear, dear person and, and really sweet. And, but I was in a situation where you had a classic sadist, masochist relationship. John was a sadist. Monty was a masochist. And at one point in filming, there was a moment when the twins, Montgomery Clifton, myself, in a dream sequence, are, are on a place with a lot of rocks. And the studio was covered in real rock. And I fall over a cliff, pulling on the umbilical cord, Monty along, who stumbles. And when we were shooting it, John had two grips on one end of the thing, dragging Monty over these rocks. Monty was covered in blood. His arms were swollen way up. And I walked off the set. Wow. I said, I will not have anything to do with this. And I went in my dressing room and I said, that's it. I I can't take this. And so it sort of stopped, you know. Nobody was shooting anything. 
and there was a knock on my door, and Larry Parks came in. Larry Parks, wow. And Larry Parks was the one who persuaded me to go back. I then discovered what Larry Parks did during the McCarthy hearings, and he was a very good one to send me in to say, <laughs> to hell with your principles, come on back. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so I went back, and John came over, and I said to him, John, who was ex- much taller than I am, why, why are you doing this to him? And he put his arm around my shoulder and said, it's good for him, David. It's good for him. Now that, to me, is a moment in my life that I will never Wow. Forget. So a little bit later, I was in London. This was all taking place in Germany. And Monty came over, and um, we were on Walton Street and having dinner together. And he said, I escaped. I got away. I got away from John. And he came over. And... Um, it was a moment, there was a phone on the table, and the phone rang, and, and the maitre d' said, it's for you, Mr. Clift. And he picked it up and held it up like this, and you could hear John's voice saying, hello, Monty. He <laughs> 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 tracked him down. Wow. Why do you think, what was his motivation? Why do you think he thought it would be good for him? Was he trying to keep get him in character? Just trying to be, get a perform abuse you know, performance the, out of him. There's Freud and Jung, and yeah. I, 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 there's no way I can. How strange! I can really follow that, but it was very strange. And there were things when Monty had colossal speeches in the, in the big anti-theater as Freud, <clears throat> and he would he would do the speech perfectly, and John wouldn't print it, and they'd do it again, and I think they did it all day. I don't know how many times he did. Wow. And so when the studio saw the rushes, realized, they just said that Monty kept, you know, so many takes, Monty kept messing up. And we all actually, Roddy McDowell was the one when the court case came up. I think somebody sued something for somebody, for something. And um, Roddy called and said, would you give testimony? I said, absolutely. This is ridiculous. But then when Monty finally, although I wasn't there, but I heard that um, Elizabeth Taylor, obviously his great friend, and and Burton and others, Monty was having a hard time. And they got a movie for him. I think Brando had something to do with it too. And they asked Monty who he'd like to direct it. And he said, well, John, of course. Wow. About that. Yeah, it's quite a story. You, and, and I can say it now because they've all moved oh, Everyone's gone. <laughs> I kept my mouth tightly shut. Every, I was watching The Great Escape. Speaking of everyone moving on, Gilbert and I were talking about The Great Escape, and I was watching it last night again, and you're the last of the Mohicans from that one too. Yeah, the, the local bar or the little house we have out here on Atlantic Beach, um, they're having a screening of The Great Escape. And I said, why don't you make it a reunion of the entire house? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they said, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, where are we? They said, where are we? You're looking at it. You that's know? it. There must be a bit, pl- there some is bit John. players. No, no, no. The guy who escapes with Charlie Bronson. Um, oh, yes, I forgot the actor's John, name. John Den, John, not John Denver. Uh, I'll look it up. I'm sorry, sorry the, John, I should remember. All the stars, name. I mean, Garner oh, and, and Coburn a, and your friend Donald if, Pleasance. If you have a moment to go back to death. Um, heard, <laughs> Is there I, an obsession I, there, David? I, I heard that. <laughs> well, I am a pathologist. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, when when um, Donald Pleasance died, I called his wife, because I know, knew them him very well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> 
I said, I'm really sorry to hear about Donald. Um, and she said, oh, David, it's so sad. He was in Germany. Uh, he was over there in France. And, oh, that was so awful. It was so awful. They, 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 they just didn't know how. They, 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 I mean, they didn't take care of him. They did. Hold on a minute. I said, what is it? She said, hang on. He's here. Donald's here. I'll call you back. And I thought, my God, she's gone completely bonkers. And it was such a strange moment. And then I discovered it was the coffin being delivered from Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) A little black comedy. (laughs) He's here. Donald's here. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You, uh, You took part in a 50th anniversary event for The Great Escape in Nebraska. In 2013? Uh, yes. You went to Omaha. I thought it was, as you just described it, it was, in fact, um, a way to get me there to do two and a half hours of signing photographs and autographs. Oh, I see. But it it was interesting to see the original print on a screen, and uh, the digitized versions are much better. What they do now on a screen is, is so... Wonderful. The Blu-ray so looks wonderful. beautiful, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. You, and you and Garner became pals, too? Yes. Well, yeah. there the was the three of us. There was Jim, myself, and Donald, because I knew Donald, and mm-hmm. we just happened to be a group that ate together. You know, right, 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 right. These things happen. Right. And, and yeah. you said every... They quickly formed groups there, and each one well, went on. Well, people that had known each other before, and, and it happens on every set. I mean, it's... Had you known, known Sir Richard before? He wasn't Sir Richard at that time. Sir Richard, yes. I heard that when they said give, give him a, a knighthood, he, they meant his brother David. But that may be apocryphal, too. Right. But I, I think David Attenborough is, I mean Richard Attenborough. No, David is phenomenal. <laughs> Richard, too. Richard's a, a lovely, dear person. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, But first, a word from our sponsor. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And one thing we have in common, I guess, is we both do a lot of voiceovers. And and you, you said you had a great line about why you like doing voiceovers. I did? Oh, oh, cartoon and video games. Yes. Yeah, you said that it's it's a great excuse to overact. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's well, you don't know mainly, any other that's way. That's mainly Gil. doing cartoons. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, did, yeah. I've done a couple of cartoons, and um, um, you, you know, you you really can let loose if you want to, and, and then you're sitting around with people making the most extraordinary noises. With their voice. <laughs> I can imagine. It's quite wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. As do you, your grandchildren? Do you show them those the Batman cartoons they, and the they Wonder see Woman? Them and say, "I saw you on television today. You were in Batman or Wonder Woman right. or something." And that was your voice, wasn't it? I said, "Yeah, probably." Right. Yeah. 
But today, I got today the final version. Um, in um, June, we were at Normandy, uh, at the uh, beaches, and I'd never been. And Catherine and I went there, and it is an extraordinary experience to go to the beach, mm-hmm. which, you know, this table, you know, this vast space, and the, uh, how the beaches, you know, my beach used to be, what, 50 yards long. This one's half a mile out to sea. And... Um, it was an interesting visit, and at the end, I was there actually to be the honorary spokesman for the World War II Foundation, and the foundation asked me, uh, General Davis asked me if I would narrate the, uh, there was a very famous moment in World War history, Point du Hoc, where um, they basically stormed the beaches on D-Day. They were, the, they were really the people that made it possible to get up, to get rid of the guns that were mm-hmm. going to be firing on Omaha. And um, I said, are you sure you want to go back to the wee lad, lad from Glasgow to do your... And he said, no, no, we really like to do it. And I got it today. The, the finished version without the credits, but it it is it is superb. Oh, good for you! And and it's just such an honor to be able to have done that narration. Something it's to be so proud special. of. We uh, Catherine and I work um, and have for many many years with the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, and they've raised oh, well over a hundred million dollars to send the children of Marines and the corpsmen who who work with them. Um, to college to help them, and it is a phenomenal. I did the 50th uh, reunion as the MC here at the Hilton, mm-hmm. and I've done on the West Coast quite a bit. Um, I've done uh, the MC in the evenings, and it is a great honor. So to be involved with the Marines and then to have been given the opportunity in a very slight way, just to pay back, to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, I had some questions very, from, from very listeners special. I'll get to later, but a couple of people wrote, please thank David for all he's done for the, for the Marine Corps, well, which well, I, will, I will mention when we get to the listener we'll questions. We'll keep it up. We'll keep it up. Yeah, good for you. That's admirable. What did your folks think when, when you told them you wanted to act? I, I assume oh, they had being a musician in mind for you? Yeah, I, I had already um, been playing the oboe for a number of years with the Corongli player from the Royal Philharmonic. And um, Leonard Brain and Leonard had got me to the point. I was in senior orchestra for one day, totally lost in the orchestra. I, I was nowhere near. I, I had not been practicing enough. And um, uh, my father said, we really want you now when you finish school to go to Paris and we will pay to send you to the Paris Conservatoire to study the oboe. And that's when I said, I really don't want to that. And he said, well, then you can pack up and leave and go find yourself a job. I mean, basically, wow. that was not in quite such terms, but that was obviously what. And also, it's what I wanted to do. And so, uh, no, I, that was it. That this was is for, for, go ahead, go. Did your parents see your success? My father thought it was a terrible idea to be an actor until my name was um, in... 30-foot letters in Leicester Square on a movie. (laughs) (laughs) He came around. And my mother's philosophy was very simple with children. You feed them, you cuddle them, you answer their questions, and you leave them entirely alone. Let them work it out. You know, to a great extent, with homework, you know, people bring homework home and the kid... 
and the father sit down and do the homework. Mm -hmm. No, the idea is the kid does it, mm -hmm. goes to school the next day, and the teacher says, why didn't you do finish it? He has to deal with of that. Of course, of course. He, and my mother's philosophy was, leave him alone. They'll be fine. What was the, what was the movie where your dad actually got to see uh, an early British film? It was... Oh. You're making me remember. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, no, you don't no, have no. to. No, no, I think it was a thing called Robbery Under Arms. Robbery Under with, Arms. With Peter Finch. Yeah, yeah, and Peter lovely, Cushing. Yeah, and Peter, who also became a very good friend over the years because I did another couple of things with Peter. And, yeah. and Peter and I once sat down and said, we're, we're talking about collective, collective nouns. Which Peter is this? Cushing. Peter Cushing. Cushing. We're looking at when I was doing a thing called, I was shooting up children in a school. It was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter said we were talking about col 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 um, collective nouns you know and he said there isn't really a good name for actors what do you call a group of actors so the next day he came in he said I've got it and I said what is it he said it's a grumble a grumble <laughs> <laughs> a grum perfect a grumble of actors <laughs> Was that the juvenile delinquency film, the, yes. the Violent Playground? Violent I, Playground? I watched some of that. It's on YouTube. It's it's it, sort of it, a blackboard it, jungle. You're yes. a, you're a, you're a very dated. Yeah, very dated. Yeah, but interest, but interesting. I think with the Schmeiser uh, it was a weapon. I was using. sort of an angry young man kind of a kind of a film. Of, belongs to that well, that genre. Uh, the, what happened to me? I was in repertory at Oxford University uh, at the Oxford Playhouse, and. There is quite a gay community at that time at Oxford, and all of those wonderful music musicals, those um, salad days, all of that music. And if you know it, you'll know what I mean. It's very light and pastel shades mm -hmm. on all the men wearing pink shirts and things. But um, there was a photographer, Kenny Parker, and he would photograph all the uh, undergraduates or whatever you call them in that particular environment, and he said, I want to do a picture. And he took a picture of me. It was exactly at the time of James Dean. And I have both of them on the wall, um, mm -hmm. the Dean picture and the picture of me. I mean, it's he copied it. And that's the picture that went to Clive Donner, not Dick Donner, Clive, Clive Donner. Donner. And it was Clive Donner's first movie. It was, uh, it was called The Secret Place with Belinda Lee. And other people, uh, it doesn't matter. But um, that imitation, that photograph in that James Dean era is what got me into movies. Interesting. Yeah. Because they, they thought you were... And then years and years later, I was in Italy doing a film called La Catura with uh, a lovely director, a lovely man. We had six feet of snow. We were in Yugoslavia having a great time. And I don't know if you know, but when um, Belinda Lee was living in America, she was in a car driven across Nevada, and she was dating an Italian count, and she, they ran right in the back of a truck, and she was beheaded. Oh, my gosh. And there were photographs with her at the top of her head at the side of the road, and it was instant death of Belinda Lee. And uh, sitting in the snow with Paolo, he said, Oh, my God, dear Costa. You worked with Belinda. And I said, well, how do you know her? He said, I was the driver of that car. Oh, my. Oh, oh my. Clearly, he ducked. Yes. But she was probably asleep. Terrible. Uh, but it's, it, it's amazing to me how things, you know, come around 
six degrees of separation. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of that. Sure. A lot of that. You know, when you do a show like this, we were telling you when you came in, we've had 250 guests, and the way people's stories overlap. Oh, that's interesting. We even get different, two different stories from, uh, the same story from two different perspectives <laughs> of, course, of, of people that worked on the same film. What's the game called? Telephone, is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, that's a fascinating uh, concept, the whole idea of six degrees. Gilbert wants to ask you those, those outer limits questions, though. Yes. If, if, if you remember anything about playing... The minor, the tra- the, rag- the rather tragic minor. Willem. Gwil- yeah. Yeah. And that lovely guy, um, um, Jill Howarth. Right. Who died a few years ago, yeah. And Edward Mulher. And Edward Mulher, yes. Yeah. Known to American audiences most for the, for the Ghost and Mrs. Muir series. And didn't he do My Fair Lady on Broadway? I, he well? must have, because he's just perfect for <laughs> Higgins. <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't, he should he should have. But uh, just, I just want to ask you about the, uh, this, uh, these are two questions from me. Remember our friend Gary Gerani, Gil? Oh, yes. Gary Gerani did the audio commentaries for some of the Outer Limits releases, and he said, please ask David that uh, he delivers some of the series' most elegant and poetic speeches, and given the swiftness of TV production at the time, was there any time for rehearsal? And did, did you work on that dialogue yourself? I came up with a couple of things. We were short. Yeah. And in one of the scenes on one day, um, I was flicking through books. That's that very thing, you know, and you're reading the Encyclopedia Britannica in 20 seconds and all that. And one of them was a book of, of actually of uh, Bach, Bach Preludes. And I happened to see it. And I think it, it, in film, it, I don't know if you see that, on the flicking, but the music game was there, impressed me slightly. And the next day when I heard they were short, I said, well... He's seen the music, and why doesn't he sit down at a piano and play the piano? Right, that's a great scene. And so that was the scene that was added as a result of me seeing that little. Well, that was one moment. But my uh, my, I can't remember the exact quote, but my son still quotes my eldest son um, with Catherine. Um, Your ignorance makes me ill. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, it's some some scathing it's thing. Great. Where he's yelling at the at the at the police. I'm saying it's a credit to you as an actor that you managed to make that character and that absurd situation believable. Well, but what was and, and sympathetic was when, he, when he, we were shooting the last scene. You know when mm-hmm. when there's the the thing and he, he, she opens it up and there's Gwillem back. The chamber, yeah. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be more interesting if it was a rhesus monkey, you know, or something? And somebody suggested getting some ketchup and just having a pool of ketchup on the chair. But, uh, yeah. What, what I remember in that, it's this most highly advanced scientist, mm-hmm. and he invents a machine that could turn you into an advanced human. And when you see the machine... It's a lever <laughs> that says forward <laughs> and backward. Yes. So you can make someone into a caveman if you want, or an advanced. You know, I never thought of that. <laughs> I am such a sucker. I totally accepted it. At one point, when David's in the chamber, when your character, Nick Willem, is in the chamber, she's pushing it backward, and you see him growing hair. You see him going back to being a, a primitive man, and then she says, too far. And she and starts back. to bring him forward again. And and you tell her beforehand, <laughs> now, if you push the lever forward, I go forward. If you push the lever back. It's wild. Please, please, please. 
It's wild. And it, the early days of prosthetic makeup, too, when you're walking around with appliance on your head. I got there at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, we, it took until 8 to put it on, and I could work till 11, 12, and then it had to come off. It was so heavy. Yeah. But my father, when he, rather than saying, here I am in the flesh, used to say, here I am in the bone, <laughs> because he was somewhat, not cadaverous, but he had very, very strong bone formation, and he didn't eat a lot. And when I put that whole thing on and yeah. it was all done, I thought, oh, my God, it's my father. Wow. The, the cheekbones and the whole thing. It just it's so reminded. Not the, you know, the bit at yes. the top. <laughs> directed by James uh, Goldstone, a yes. little trivia, who directed a Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode. With, yes, you know? yes, yes. And what was Robert Vaughn like to work with? Wonderful. Creative. Um simple, never a problem, and all of it covered over by the fact that he was studying either to write something or to make a political speech because he was very fond of the Kennedys and mm -hmm. worked with mm -hmm. them. And he, I think he was also at the university taking one of those letters that you get past your name that have eluded me in my life. Well, he became a PhD. He became a PhD, yeah. exactly. And so... He would very much be come out on the set. He, 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 every, he, he always knew his words perfectly. Acting 101, which in many cases has gone by the board, which I'm horrified to see. But he was always prepared. And I loved to choreograph scenes with the director. So I had worked out, you know, why don't I stand here, you stand there, you do this and that. And he went along with it. Um, and we just, it was very copacetic. And and great, we had we had a good time. And Leo was wonderful. Yeah, Leo, Leo G. Carroll. And then we had all these charming, lovely ladies that came by. All the innocents. <laughs> you said a very nice thing about Robert when he passed. It was very touching. You said that losing him was like losing a part of yourself. Yeah, it's true. Very sweet. It's true. I, you know, the older I get, the more people keep going. Um, here we go again. But um, you know. One of the things I've noticed, if I go to somebody's funeral and people stand up and eulogize them, I sit there thinking, I didn't know anything about this. How the hell, why the hell didn't I know about all this about this person when they were alive, you know? Suddenly they have a military history, you know, highly decorated or something. Or, or they were, there's always a lot. Uh, That's uh, interesting. It's, it's, you think you know someone well, and yet there's parts of themselves and, and, they never and reveal. And you find out when they've gone. It's, yeah. It's a mistake. It's yeah. a mistake. And there was one, well, see, this was Girl from Uncle, which you weren't on. No, I wasn't. And yeah. uh, where they had Boris Karloff and Drag. <laughs> yes, Miss, what was it, Mother Muffin? Yes. Yeah. Have you ever met Boris Karloff? No. No. No, I knew, um, oh, God, I've lost the name. You mentioned him. In Vincent the, Price. In, no, Vincent Price. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, Vincent Price had a house north of Malibu, uh, uh, an apartment, or maybe it was a house, I can't remember, but he invited us all up there for dinner or lunch one Sunday, and uh, I, I, I knew him quite well. Uh, lovely man. He's a great villain. He's in one of the best Uncle episodes. And, and speaking of um, of cooks, I, I realized the other day, 
that at some point in my life, I did a show with Danny Kaye in Danny Kaye's dressing room, and we were with Danny Kaye for a while. He was an obsessive cook. He cooked everything. Yeah, we heard that about him. Just quite wonderful, wonderful. I think he's food. in the... We, we talked, before we turned the mics on, we were talking about Carol Channing, who you were in a, in a variety show with, who we just lost... Yes. At the age of ninety-seven, oh, Carol was divine. I believe Danny Kay was on that was on that special. I think it was George Burns and Danny Kay and you. I don't remember Danny Kay being on that. Well, show. maybe it was the Andy Williams one, but it was one. It was one or the other because I was watching them right. last night. It's funny. We, Gilbert and I, were laughing about the days of variety shows. Yes, when a hot actor like yourself at the time or Adam West would be invited onto these variety right. shows, and <clears throat> mostly in character. Yes, I remember when the first Andy Williams show I did, they had the Tijuana Brass. Yeah. And we were doing ba-da-da-dum, bum, ba-da-dum, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> the boom, boom, you didn't realize it, but that was me back then. Oh, really? With a sombrero and a mustache, <laughs> a long mustache, good old clothes, and with this great big drum, and I was boom, boom. And then they'd pull me out of the, you know, that was uncle agent in disguise. Yeah, I was explaining to Gilbert today in the Andy Williams special, you pull out a device that, 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 that Curry Aachen is working on, which allows you to simulate anyone else's voice. Oh, that's that one with with Judy. Yeah, and suddenly you're you're singing the man that got away in Judy Garland's voice, <laughs> doing a duet with Andy Williams, and it's surreal. I, I, yeah. I have you to. You look get game that for moment. anything back then. And that. there's a wonderful piece of tape, um, um, Hullabaloo. Yeah. When I hosted Hullabaloo and. 007, and I'm singing and dancing away. It's just quite amazing. Yeah. Who is this guy? I've heard you say that. You look <laughs> back at this stuff and you don't... Well, d- doing Julius Caesar in Central Park? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. <laughs> now you can't imagine, <laughs> yeah. looking yeah, back. Barbara Felton said back then, and it's funny to mention Barbara Felton because Another she spy was, show. Yeah, yeah, another secret yeah. agent. Right. And she said, because she was known at the time, every week she was doing another variety show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I have to try and remember. I'm sure I did others. <clears throat> well, well, we'll get back to Uncle, but since you brought up music, I have to ask you, too, about the big TNT show. Isn't that wonderful? How the hell did you get involved put, with put that? Put that list of names up. I have it here somewhere. Let me find it. It's on one of my cards. Sonny and Cher. Was oh, it? It, was, uh, it was Ray Charles <laughs> and Joan Baez. And uh, where is that? And I get the same billing. Yeah. <laughs> you, were the, with, you, were the, you were the master of ceremonies. And it was? Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. I knew and I had the band there. It was Ray Charles. It was the Ronettes. It was the birds, Ike and Tina Turner. Ike and Tina Turner, that's right. And David McCallum. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> needless to say, my children have the poster on somewhere in the house. <laughs> that's wild. It's and called Cheeky. Yeah. Now, I know you had a music career, but how did you get involved with that? Well, when we the Man From U.N.C.L.E. was a big success, they came and said, we want you to sing. That's simple. Yeah. And um, we sing a song and we'll release it. And I said, I don't really want to sing, but I'd like to write an orchestration. <clears throat> so what I thought I would do was to take not electronic, just straight woodwind, and take a quartet of oboe, um, basically oboe corangle, 
um, anything, and four French horns to do in the string section, but use four French horns and take the top 40 of the time and make it rather Mozartian drawing mm -hmm. room. You know, it's a sound I've never heard. I'd love to do it one day, if there's anybody listening. Um, <laughs> you never know. But at the same time, um, I, I was then given to David Axelrod. I met Peggy Lee and um, Lou Rawls and wow. all the person, the people he was working with. And he said, let's use H.B. Barnum, who was doing the, um, at that time, doing the arrangements for the Supremes. So here I am in with this glitterati of the music business. I'm not going to say I want to do Mozarti and stuff. I kept my <laughs> Go mouth with the flow. <clears throat> Go with the flow. So I, when I went in the studio the first time, and um, I think it was Satisfaction, and, you know, they blew the studio down. I mean, it was nothing imagine. like what I had imagined. I can imagine. But wow. everybody was saying, oh, this is so cool and so great. And I'm thinking, well, go with the flow, as you say. It's great when we do research into the guest's career and the little surprises. And I knew a lot about you. I knew the Titanic movie. I knew The Great Escape, of course, Uncle. But I did, And I knew you had a music. I knew you'd cut a couple of albums. I did not know you conducted the orchestra oh, yeah. at the big TNT show. <laughs> At the old Moulin Rouge in Hollywood, and it's just, I was, here, I found the card. It's Ray Charles, Joan Baez, uh, backed by Phil Spector on piano. Wow. <laughs> Roger Miller, King of the Road. Roger Miller, King the of the Road. Ronettes, Donovan, uh, The Birds, Icantina Turner. Oh How about God. that? And David McCallum. And David McCallum, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, conducting the orchestra. And yeah. there's also that clip, speaking of music, of you singing with Nancy Sinatra, where you sing Trouble. Yeah, I think I wrote the song. Yeah, yeah, that's a fun. That's fun. Yeah, I still get little checks from ASCAP. From you do like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, but there's another moment of talking of conducting orchestras. I did a thing called Mother Love, which we haven't mentioned uh, for um, British television. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of it, I play a traveling worldwide conductor. And um, I. They said, at one point, we need you to conduct an orchestra. I said, fine, you know, small quintet or something. And then they said, today's the day. And I'd worked with um, a conductor. I know how to conduct. I mean, my father told me all about that. Sure. And he told me all the things that conductors do that they don't like. And he told me when the band goes on automatic pilot, which I thought was a <laughs> wonderful line for a symphony uh -huh. orchestra. <laughs> And um, they said, today's the day. And I went down to the hall, and the BBC Symphony Orchestra was there. And I did a, a piece of Mozart, um, which I used the, the Beecham recording of the Hafner Symphony. It's very specific tempos. And, and then in the rehearsal, I, I did the Prokofiev uh, Classical Symphony. So I conducted both of these, one in mufti and the other in full, you know, mm -hmm. white tie and tails. And when it was all over, um, I, somebody said, you know, your father would have been proud of you. And I thought that was such a nice thing to say because they all knew him when he was in the orchestra. And I turned to the principal cello and said, you know, I did what I could. And he said, you're better than what we usually get. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Which I have lived on. <laughs> what a since. nice surprise. I don't know if it was the cellist. I won't attribute it to anybody. I, I heard them say that conductors is like an egotist dream. 
Well, when you stand there in front of 70 people and you lift your hand up in the air and you bring it down in a single beat, particularly if you're doing Beethoven's Fifth, because that's what you have to do, one of the harder ones to start. But, you know, I've sat in the pit with Vittorio Gui, with, oh, so many, many conductors over, over my lifetime and watched Beecham a lot. Um, there's something on the other end of that, which is quite extraordinary to me, is when you have 70 or more musicians and when it starts, it's as if there's one person there. If you listen to a great, the Chicago Symphony or the Vienna Philharmonic, it, you've got to remember, it's 70 people. Yeah. And if you listen, the precision... And I remember watching um, with the Royal Philharmonic, the woodwind section... They could tune their minds and their instruments to a quarter of a, a note, you know. Not, I can hear a note and a half note if it's a little out of tune, but they could actually hear something out of tune that I could not hear at all. And the, the dexterity of which they played those instruments and as a team, it, it's immaculate. It's, it's, I know I'm in awe of that kind of ability myself. It, it, it's... It's why it's why it's wonderful to watch golf. I mean, I've been on the tee at Riviera and watched those quite short guys hit the ball 365 yards. How do they do it? Uh, it's just watching expert people do the thing they do. It's such a pleasure. And a couple of years ago, the movie Baby Driver came out, and a David McCallum composition turned up on the soundtrack. Do you know what I'm referring to? I think that was written by David Axelrod. Oh, is it's that, on my album. Oh, is that The Edge? Yes. Oh, okay. David wrote that. Oh, okay. For, but from your album. But it's on the album, and I take credit, all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> Life is tough enough. I stand, I stand corrected. <laughs> Gil, what do you want to ask this man about? You want to ask about, uh, I want to well, ask, go ahead. There's the Frankenstein movie. Franken, we have to ask you about the Frankenstein, the true story. The like true story. The yeah. prettiest Prettiest Frankenstein ever. Michael uh, Sarazen. Yeah. Michael Sarazen. With you as the mad doctor. Yeah. Henry Clerval. Clavel. Clerval. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I haven't seen it in years. Is it Clavel? The only thing that I really remember about that is, I think, who directed Midway, the first one? Um, oh, gosh. Anyway. This uh, director? It's with Jack Smite? Jack Smite. Yeah. Anyway, Jack Smite directed that. Yeah, he no way to treat a lady we, we love. Oh, yeah. Yes. He, he was a lovely man, and I said, oh, I've got to find something. So I went to the prop department at the studio we were working in. I found a parabolic mirror, which was about that big, you know, a good three feet in diameter. And if you held it up, the distortion of your own face was quite extraordinary. And I thought it was perfect. And there's one scene where I walk around the room with some speech that needed a little something. <laughs> And there is this face in the mirror. That's all. And the other thing I love, um, in order to uh, have a hospital somewhere, the St. Mary's Hospital in London, which had been closed up, the attic, since the mid-1800s, um, they decided to go and see what was up there. And there was the hospital exactly as they just closed it up. Beds, everything. And the wow, dust. frozen in time. And they blew the, blew the dust off, and that's where we shot a lot of this stuff in the hospital. And there's one point, I think it was in Frankenstein, where I saw a leg off. That sounds right. And I've so seen it in a few years. I got years. A, a tin can on the ground, and I got a piece of wood, 
<laughs> and a saw, and I put the guy on the bed, and uh, you never actually saw what I was doing, but I actually cut through the wood, and when it fell off, it fell into the bucket with a clonk, and the, it's exactly in the in the movie as oh. we did it. <laughs> It's a very interesting revisionist take on the Frankenstein story. Well, I'm sure. And it's like I they mean. tried to bake the, the Frankenstein story and the Bride of Frankenstein into the movie. Because yeah, Dr. I, I, Polidori, uh, the Mason character. Oh, yeah. That's another very good friend. James, James Mason. James Mason, yes. And when I was at Glyndebourne, the Eberts were the directors. Um, and uh, years and years later, when James was living in Malibu... He called me up one night, I'd like to come over and have dinner. And I went over, and the younger Abbott was there. And he was telling me all about me when he saw me as a young stage manager, assistant stage manager, property master at Glyndebourne. Oh, wow. And he said, I remember you doing this and doing that and doing that. It was a really nice moment to be sort of reminded of those moments. Why don't you favor David with, with a little bit of your impression? Because I think he'll, I think he'll get a kick out of it. From this point on, you won't have any memories of <laughs> Joe Pendleton or Leo Fonsworth. <laughs> it's your destiny, Joe. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Great. Pretty, pretty good, huh? Brando, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Richard Burton. <laughs> uh, I could have been a contender. <laughs> I want to add. I want to talk about a night to remember too. But I'm just going to ask you about some of these people because I found this interesting too. We talked about all the people that had, that showed up on on the Man from Uncle, and you said that someone asked you in an interview, "Were you starstruck by people like Joan Crawford and George Sanders?" Oh. And you said all of them. Oh, I mean, when I was in my early teens, my father would take us to the Odeon local Odeon cinema, mm -hmm. and if he came, we sat upstairs in the front, and if we, we went on our own, we went downstairs in the front, which was dreadful because of a big screen. But with Father, it was fabulous. And I watched, you know, all of those people, and particularly all the gangsters, sure. Mazursky and, and Cianello and all those incredible people. And on The Man from Uncle, they all came by. They all showed up. And yeah. I didn't have a um, an autograph book. An autograph book. I heard you say that you regretted not having oh, an autograph oh, book. And, and you know, um, George Sanders had the conversation with Bob and I one night, one day when we were working, that he was going to kill himself when he got to a certain age. Wow. And he did, because he didn't want to grow old. And, and when Joan Crawford came along and <clears throat> there were roses everywhere and... It was the wrong color because I think it was the Coca-Cola. She wasn't she. Oh yes, yeah. It was all of that. Oh, and the, the assistant director said, "Get the girl." I said, "Daryl, don't don't say that. Why didn't you say get Miss Crawford?" Because I don't think get the girl is the right thing to say to, <laughs> this week. <laughs> and, and, and oh, just so many, many, many. Elsa Lanchester. Elsa Lanchester, Vincent Price, George Sanders, Joan Crawford. Martin. Oh, and um, himself. Uh, Oh, uh, Jack Palance. Jack Palance. Oh, my God. Jack Palance, Jack Leonard Nimoy. Wonderful guy. Wonderful. Oh, Leonard, yes. Yeah. Tell us about oh. Jack Palance. Which is exactly the way he was. Uh -huh. I mean, there was no, the real deal. The, the real deal, yeah. It's like Keenan Wynn and, and who was that wild one? The, the drunks, all the great drunks. I've oh, you worked with, with Rip Torn. There's one. 
Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And what was, yeah, what was Keenan Wynn like? Keenan was dear. I, I was in Florida with him doing Around the World Under the Sea, um, which has the lurid, most wonderful posters. Um, <laughs> um, there was a, a moment when a sound man came to me on NCIS and said, I found this poster, and he showed it to me on his computer, and it was the big one of Around the World Under the Sea, but I think in Italian. Mm-hmm. And so I, he gave me the number, and I called the people, and they said, it's just been bought. Sorry. And then at the end of that week, um, they said, we have some, there's a birthday of somebody in, on the set. And I, I smelled a rat. I didn't know what it was. But I went down and the whole crew and everybody from the offices was down. And Mark Harmon presented me with that poster. Oh, he was nice. the one that bought it and gave it to me. Oh, which, lovely. And I still have it. Oh, it's still up there. Yeah, George Sanders, Herbert Lom, Maurice Evans. John Carradine. These are some of the people that you worked with on, on Uncle. Well, tell us about John Carradine. What a, what a roster of people. Gosh, I can't tell you about anybody. You know, we worked together. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony Hopkins said it beautifully. They said, well, how do you prepare and all that? And he said, well, you know, I've been doing this for rather a long time. Um, I, I sort of read the script and then I, I learn my lines and I try to look my best, and I go along, and I do the bit, and I come. I mean, it's, <laughs> it was a simple description of something which uh, <clears throat> some people can make so complicated. Sure. Was was Ilya Kuryakin named after a prostitute in a, in the in the I film? I hope so. Never. <laughs> if so, I have to m- meet the gentleman. You had not heard that before. <laughs> I've never heard that Okay, before. it may not be true. But what was Elia's middle name? Oh. have no idea. Isn't that interesting? Nikovich. Nikovich. Love that. No, I saw on a trivia site, and I hope it's true, we'll have to double check, but that Ilya was the prostitute in the film Never on Sunday. Wow. Melina uh, Mercury. Either Norman Felton Melina or Sam. Melina Mercury? Yeah, Melina yeah. Mercury. Very yeah. good. That I guess Norman Felton or or Sam Rolfe saw that and liked the name. That's that's the story that I read. Could be BS. <laughs> As this entire evening um, has been a <laughs> none of it's true. None of it's true. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Let me ask you about playing Harold Bride in A Night to Remember which my wife and I watched, and Gilbert and I were talking about it. I think it's the best movie about Titanic, personally. Oh, it's a wonderful It's a wonderful and film. it's a compendium, or commendium, whatever the word is, of all the actors of the, who all were of working in London at that time. They're all in there. Kenneth Moore mm. and uh, Alec McCow and Dennis, uh, Desmond Llewellyn. Everybody turns up in there. Everybody, yes, and, and it, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it, because historically it's a wonderful document. Um I had a little tiny red car in those days, and I drove out to the studio the first time I was called. And at Pinewood, you have the studios, and then at the back, there's a, the back lot, which is, you know, fields. But they'd built the whole center section of the Titanic at a 40, well, 35-degree angle. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I have to work on the angle. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it was all lit up, 
and you come round the corner and there it is, as if it's sinking. It was at night. So it looked as if it was sinking into the ground. It was an image I have in my... You know, you have those images. Sure. Stay with you forever. And then um, I did the whole thing. When we were in Ryslip Lido in the water, never for more than five minutes, it was only 10 degrees warmer than it was in the Atlantic. So it was very, very cold. And they had nurses and things to try and keep us warm and everything. And... um, I learned years later that Harold McBride was so upset, or I don't know why. He was, was a telegraph operator, just he, to bring our listeners up to speed. It was the first time SOS was sent, because yeah. after then it was CQD, come quick distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sent out SOS. But he went to Scotland, to a crofter's cottage, way in the north of Scotland, and became a recluse. And the only reason I knew it was there was a little note in the paper that said he died. Being uh, that it was based on the true story of the Titanic and that you were freezing water, was there like emotional uh, problems with the actors after that? Any of them get really upset? If they did, they kept it from me. I never knew of anybody who had suffered. No, it's a job of work, and they take great care of you. And Some survivors did come to the premiere. Oh, I went to all, yeah. yeah. I, we, we had, um, L- we L- had uh, reunions of all the survivors. The same with the Coldest story that I did, mm-hmm. which was all about the escapes from this prisoner of war camp. Um, the survivors of that used to go to the, there's a pub just by King's Cross, and we'd all meet there, and we'd all go, and kept going. And it was like my mother used to play in a quintet. And then she played in a quartet, and then she played in a trio. Oh. And then it was her and the pianist. (laughs) And finally, it was unaccompanied Bach. I mean, this is the way these things happen. I think the last survivor died a few years ago. What was your opinion on the current Titanic film? I've never watched it all the way through. I've tried to watch it, but... To me, it, it seemed to be more of a, and I, I'm not saying the word denigrating it, uh, um, it, more of a soap opera, it's more about the sort of a love story between a man and a woman rather than a documentary about what happened to the yeah. ship. Yeah. And having the images and remembering and meeting all the people that I met, it, it just, uh, I, I'm, I'm it, not, not good at it. Was it the largest produ- British production of the decade, I believe? And the lo- yeah. the biggest film that the rank organization had had made. Well, yeah, just to date, building that set, yeah. must have been tremendous. Yeah, yeah. And I, then I, another boat picture I did was Billy Budd. Oh, sure. I'll ask you about Billy Budd uh, with Ustinov and Melvin Douglas and all those and people. My favorite thing about that movie was the cameraman who operated the, the whole movie. Whenever the ship was going this way, he went up and down that way. Whenever it went this way, whenever you're shooting, you know, whatever the angle, he actually, with the wheels on the, my head, would act, do the... If you watch the movie... Yeah. Oh, interesting. Whatever that direction that ship is going, you're aware of it. It's, it was a, a superlative people, piece of operating. I have a question about Billy Budd, actually, from, uh, from one of our listeners. This is from Luke... 
He says it was an actor's film. Does David, what was the environment like? Uh, was there sharing and generosity among the actors or was it competitive? I've never in my life been in a place where the actors were competitive. That's good so to hear. I wouldn't know. That's good to hear. But what I know was it was we were in Alicante and uh, we had Peter and we had the boat and there wasn't really anywhere you could get off the boat because it was a tea clipper and it was empty inside. But there was a boat hanging off the back, the dinghy off the back, and I climbed down there. And it was very hot, and we had five layers of clothes. So I went way to a little local tailor, and I had him make dickies out of everything. So I wore a T-shirt and the shirt, and then my entire wardrobe had a zipper. So I could take it off and put it on, and I was fully dressed without having to go through layers. And I dropped down into the boat at the back, and it became my little dressing room back there. I had my own space. Oh, that's great. Because for the first couple of weeks, when Ustinov was telling his stories, and we were all in hysterics, because he's one of the funniest men you'll ever work with, by the time you got to the third week, we were just beginning to edge away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> One story and too then many. It, then it got to the point where you had to escape no matter what. <laughs> but I also had the great pleasure of meeting Robert Ryan. And what I, an I told Mark Harmon, you know, and Mark felt that it was a great compliment to him. I said that Mark reminded me very much of Robert Ryan. Wow. But what a wonderful, wonderful actor and such a gentleman. And Robert Ryan was always like the meanest person in the movie, his characters. So he was an opposite of that? Oh, he was was a charming, fully... He was a gentleman. I mean, it's the easiest way to say it. Uh, A little like Borgnine, who always played bruisers and was actually a gentle soul. Yeah, everyone liked him. Yeah. And... So you say every one of the actors you've worked with has been a pro, like not... There have been a couple of actresses who I would um, suggest that they take up other work. (laughs) (laughs) Does does the screaming skull play into (laughs) this? No, 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 no. No, 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 it was Dick Cavett's wife who was in Oh, Carrie Nye. Carrie Nye was Dick Cavett was in that very chair a week ago. Good man. Yeah. He still has the actor's nightmare, by the way. He has the talk show host nightmare. Where he oh. the guest is there and he doesn't have the cards and he has no questions and he's totally unprepared, which is interesting. Uh, yes. Yeah. Here's another question for you from a from a fan. Uh, this is from Beverly Carr, uh, who is a big fan of yours. Does uh, does Mister uh, McCallum have a favorite classical composer or piece of music? <clears throat> there are too many. Too many to pick. Um, you know, you got to start with Mozart, and then you would move on to Haydn, obviously, and Papa Haydn. And then, growing up, I went through a severe phase of Mahler, Bruckner. I have the same attitude towards Beethoven that Glenn Gould had. I saw an interview with Glenn Gould once, who was explaining all what he did on the piano with Bach. And he said, Beethoven, and then he gave all these illustrations of bum, 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 bum. It was very funny. Um, there's a little heaviness sometimes 
But I, I was property master at Kleinborn, and we, we did Mozart, and because he found Tutte. Mm-hmm. So it begins with Mozart water, for you. Yes, and yes, I would say Mozart. J.D. Mack says, what is the story behind David's rather bizarre 1966 single, My Carousel? Is there a story there? My Carousel. We're going back too far, maybe, here with some of these. There, there is a single out there. The B-side, I think, was Communication? No, that was the A-side. Oh, that was the A-side, so I've got it back. Communication is wonderful. It's a takeoff of Leader of the Pack. Oh, okay, I have to hear it It's a satire of Leader of the Pack. I have to hear it. I'm not going to sing it. Where am I going? Where am I in this world? I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful sort of silly lines that I wrote, (laughs) and they put all these women, we love you the whole day through and all that. I've had a checkered career. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to read a couple quickly of these names. Uh, uh, Steve McQueen, James Mason, Monty Clift we talked about, James Garner, Richard Dreyfuss, Claude Rains. You were in The uh, Greatest Story Ever Told. I never was in the same... Never in a scene with him. Sir Richard Attenborough, Roddy McDowell. Yeah, Roddy was a good friend for quite a long time, and Roddy was wonderful because he he kept up a correspondence. He, Uh He wrote to everybody. And they all wrote back, and that was his life with these letters. We've heard so many sweet things about him among the, yeah. the 200 people that we've, that we've interviewed. And Betty Davis. Betty Davis, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Do you remember anything about... Well, Watcher in the Woods was, was a, a movie which was neither science fiction nor the other, and, and the movie sort of went in one direction, and then at the end suddenly twisted around and went science fiction. And I never felt that the two came together. Um, but it was an interesting project. You worked with both Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and George Sanders. <laughs> and, and the great George Sanders. what's his name? Um, Sean Connery. And Sean Connery. Yeah, they, what was that called? Uh, Hell Drivers. Yes. Directed by someone who was blacklisted during, again, with the Marcati era. Oh, gosh. Era. Yeah. You know, I found it interesting. Cy Enfield. What's that? Cy Enfield. Cy Enfield. Yeah. I found it fascinating that Robert Vaughn wrote a book about the blacklist, about the Hollywood blacklist. Yeah. That, that was one of his, his interests. One of his books, yes. Yeah. Yes. What an interesting man. And I think that I just... Pops a memory in my head with George Sanders. I think his suicide note was, I'm tired of living in this cesspool, or I'm bored. I'm bored. I I'm bored. Something like that. Someone else had the cesspool one, but I'm, yeah. I'm just bored. Well, I have no intention of committing suicide. I'm glad, <laughs> David. But I have, I, have, I have known people very close who have. Yeah. And... It is an extraordinarily interesting subject in many ways. The, the means, the, how it happens, and obviously who it happens to, but at the same time, you know, what's, happened, what's wonderful over the years is depression. We've come to grips with that so much more than we used to. And I've also been very aware, going back to the Marines, the number of suicides you get within the military, which is a terrible problem. But it's... um, Being a pathologist for 16 years, virtual, virtual pathologist... Ducky Mallard. I mean, I know how to cut them up and dice them and all that and prep them. 
But at the same time, when it comes to the um, the lab and all, you know, getting on a microscope, which is how you find out how the actual death occurred and everything, unless it's obvious. Uh, I, I've studied that, but I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Have you been present for autopsies or performed them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Very Not good. performed them. No, but but no, you've been... Don't touch, but I've been, yeah. yes, fully gowned and clothed. Fascinating. And what has caused, like, the suicide among Marines? I don't know what it is, but I think depression, PTSD, has a lot to do with it. Um, they're getting a handle on it. There are societies, and, you know, when I, I go to the Marine Corps functions very often, and people come up and talk to me and give me their card, and very often it's an, a foundation or an association that deals with PTSD and is there to help. And that now is tremendous. Um, my wife's father was uh, a, a Tinian, Iwo Jima's, I mean, he, he went right through the Pacific. Um, and then her brother was killed at Da Nang, so we have that involvement with the Marine Corps. But um, back then, you know, you came back from wars, World War Two, even, and... and you know, there were no organizations at all to support these people. And, you know, you arrived back, you'd been on Wall Street before you left, or you'd been in college, and you went to work. You sucked so, it up and went to work with devastating psychological effects. And nowadays, I think that whole thing has changed. I think now they're very, very aware of what it, did, what it does to people. I just want to get this in. Buddy Spencer, one of our listeners, says, I'm a big uncle and NCIS fan, but I do want to thank David for his support of the Marine Corps and the USO. He's a veteran as well. So I wanted to get that out there. You're doing good things, David, for people. Yeah, well, we had a big family gathering not long ago at Christmas. No, Thanksgiving. And I was asked to say a few words, and I ended what I said with a very simple thing. I said... Just every night before you go to bed, say to yourself, what have I done today to help somebody or more than one person? I mean, just do something for somebody else and uh, your life will take on a whole new meaning. That's a great way to live. The only way. Gilbert, what else do you have for this man? By the way, I just want to bring up two death of a dream. I want to bring up, since we talked about Titanic and we were talking about your voiceovers and your narration, you, you've narrated that wonderful Titanic documentary, which people should see. I'd forgotten. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but it's very good. It's very good. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. It's, the, it's, it's the best, I think it's the best documentary. And there's on. my documentary when I played Beethoven and actually did it in the voice of Beethoven. Did you? I don't know. Oh. It was an ABC or one of those ways. What was the name of that? No idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have trouble in the beginning because of your Scottish accent? I went to a man called Rupert Bruce Lockhart, who was the singing coach of Covent Garden, because my father was in the pit at Covent Garden, so he'd met a lot of people, and he introduced me to Rupert Bruce Lockhart, because I had a Glasgow accent which occasionally I can turn on when Dave, but my mother said, oh, please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, he taught me, he, he eliminated my Scottish accent, and we did it using the French language, and I had to learn reams of Racine and things in order to speak French and then go from French to English without... It, it, it's more the cadence 
and, and the vowels and the consonants. Did Russians ever get in touch with you and say you sound nothing like a Russian? Or is, you're, you're, <laughs> no, I was, I, was, I was censured in Pravda. Really? Yeah, there was something about American television and this. It's also you can't quite get a handle, and I guess it's part of uh, Ilya's mystery: is is he from? Is he Georgian? Is he Ukrainian? Is he is he Russian? The very, There's a little bit of everything very, thrown very, in there. Yeah, in the very very beginning, there were one or two references as to who he was, <clears throat> and I talked to Sam Rolf, and it was a conscious decision to never reveal anything about him at all. Great idea, because I said then everybody can have their own image. I was smart. Yeah. And he's part gypsy, too, I think. He's very comfortable around... Plays the violin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wait, enigmatic was the word that they used to describe that character. Yeah. David, this was fun. We thank you for schlepping in the cold. Oh, and, and taking a, a stroll down memory lane with what us. What a pleasure. And you know, all I'm thinking is that when this is all over and... My son Peter and Sophie, my daughter, I mean, they can get a copy of this and have it for posterity and how I wish I could have my father sit down and do... I met everybody in the world would of like... Of course. To, how, ...to be able to sit down and just talk about the past. Well, to that end, will you, will you write a book or, or Well, I wrote a book, to, but it's fiction. Oh, you wrote a novel. But, and but, uh, it did very well, and I'm trying to write a second one at the moment, which is not easy because I set the the bar too high with the first one, and um, we'll see. We'll I meant, see. would you write a memoir or, or an autobiography about all of these? The only thing I could do is if someone came along and said, "I want to write your memoir with you," and and do what we've literally done here. Uh, I have a book with. A, a year from when I was born in 33 right through until a few years from now. And whenever I find a letter or anything, I, I wrote it, it's in the book. Mm -hmm. So I have a sort of crazy diary of my life to help me remember things. And so using that as a basis, someone could say, uh, you know, I'd like to just sit down and just talk through. Uh, but I, could, I, I wouldn't want to sit down and write my own, no. It would not be an autobiography. Okay. If anyone's listening, again. Yeah, this, this is it. This is my biography, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> Known as the Gottfried Frank. Yeah, that's it. Now, I, earlier today, my wife was on the phone with you, and I got on the phone. And, and I just remember I say, Hi, David, it's Gilbert Gottfried. And you said, Oh, did you have a good lunch? <laughs> yes. Yes. I was wondering where that came from. Well, it was three o'clock. Yes. You called. He assumed. You had a warm sound in your voice. Oh, nice. A little bit of a lilt. I think it was a cabernet I could smell. <laughs> and I had just come from a wonderful lunch with the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. So I thought, well, if I've had a good lunch, I'm sure you have to. And I don't know you. I don't know anything about it. What am I going to say? Are you, <laughs> yeah, right. He's standing are on you wearing clean underwear today? <laughs> Had you, are you, were you familiar with Gilbert's work as a no. stand-up? No. You're better off. No. Yeah. <laughs> You're far better off. Here's a quote, David. You said, I never wanted to be famous. I just wanted to earn enough money to have a nice life and enjoy acting. Mm -hmm. And you've accomplished Been that. There, well, 
I got a few projects. <laughs> a few, a few cards left a to few play. Projects, yeah, sort of military contracts and com- companies that I've sort of become involved with, and people working in cryptocurrency and and various other things, which I think is the future. Uh huh. By a tremendous amount, Crypt- particularly cryptocurrency. I think it's just a matter of time before we we worldwide rid ourselves of all these little bits of paper and coins. And at the same time, the um, the whole business of military procurements, and uh, I've been quite interested interested in that and involved in that. So I keep going off at tangents. Yes, you're a man of many interests. Yeah, and enjoying every single one of them. Oh, well, we and I love to cook too. You love to cook as well. well I love to eat. And do That's maybe do I a cookbook. Do. And throw in some anecdotes about Vincent Price and, and Jack Palance. Oh, yes. <laughs> no, and, and Danny Kay. And Danny Kay. Yeah. Cooks I've known. Yeah. This yes, was I, fun for us. Thank you for doing it. Yeah. I hope you had fun. I Well, I've been talking about me. What could be, <laughs> what could be, what could be more of a pleasure? You're staying on at NCIS for a while. 16 years now? Uh, well, yeah, 16 years. And um, I, I've just was with the, talking to the writers the last couple of days uh, about what I'm going to be doing, the three shows that I'm about to go out and do on the 28th of January and they've got some very interesting ideas and I you know I said you know Ducky's you know he's not getting old he's he's like me he's he's interested he's vibrant he's you know so I I, I don't want any of this heading towards walking around with a walker you know and <laughs> uh, doing this make him exciting make something happen for him you still enjoy so, playing him yeah, I enjoy yeah. playing him. He's not coming in and saying he's been cut open, it's an autopsy, it's this, 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 and this. I mean, come up with some interesting things. Right. Make, make him a character that people want to become interested in. And I said, he's not alone. I mean, the guy's been retired, basically, for a year or so. He would have a cl- some friends, and they would be involved in his life. So I'm hoping in some way that can be brought into it. So if you guys are listening... Yeah. Let's, Any let's, chance for Gilbert and I to play a cadaver on the show? <laughs> like a small part. When you're naked <laughs> on that steel uh-huh. in a cold, that autopsy room's very beautifully air conditioned. You will freeze your ass off. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you, David. This was a kick. Mm. And so. We, so as the sun sets, we say farewell. Remember those movies? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Gilly? Yeah, so this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the man who will forever be known to me as the big head guy from Outer <laughs> Limits. <laughs> Gwilin. Uh, I want to thank Krista Rose, too, for helping with uh, our research and for Frank Verderosa, our engineer, for booking David. Well, I've known Frank for a very long time. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> and he's a all great right. guy. He is. I thank him for inviting me here tonight. Thanks, and David. We thank you, David McCallum. A pleasure.
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. Mm-hmm.